All right, what's up, everybody? Today, I would like to take you on a deep dive into one of my favorite Christian philosophers, the incredibly based William James. So this one is going to be somewhat intense and focused, and I'm going to really try to share some real wisdom bombs with you, some real historical knowledge and theoretical stimulation. But this is just going to be one of the formats that I'm experimenting with. So if you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, feel free to quit it and also let me know. And I'll definitely be doing some more freewheeling and lighthearted pieces as well. As always, if you have any questions for me, you can email me or you can also contact me now at otherlife.co slash contact if you prefer. If you have questions or comments that you'd like for me to address on the show, hit me up. Or if you just want to send me a message. And before I get started, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast with whatever app you listen to podcasts on. And if you would be so kind to share this podcast with a friend or your social networks, that would be my only request today. It's really hard to get the word out about super niche, weird, creative projects. So if you like what I'm doing, that's the best way you could help. Thanks. All right, let's go. If you don't know anything about William James, one of the reasons why he's so interesting and impressive to me, why I find his ideas and his texts particularly rewarding today, is that he was a well-trained scholar of the medical sciences of the 19th century. In other words, as scientifically sophisticated as one could be at the time, right as Darwinism was having its profound implications on social consciousness. So William James is quite a bit younger than Darwin. James comes after Darwin. Darwin was born in 1809, and William James wasn't born until 1842. And so William James is kind of the scientific master who is dealing with all of the chaos and the errors that an overconfident, overzealous scientific community was becoming possessed by, thanks to the discoveries of Darwin. But he was a Christian, and he never let go of that. His task was to make sense out of modern scientific discoveries in light of his Christian faith. And before I go on to summarize for you what was most interesting and impressive about how he would do this, I should say a brief word about his actual religious profile so you can build a mental picture of where he sits in the history of American ideas. So he was basically what we would call a Unitarian. He was from New York City, and so pretty much all of America's famous and celebrated intellectuals from the Northeast and from the 19th century or earlier, almost all of them are Unitarians, like the other big examples being Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. I guess there are some exceptions to this, namely the Quakers also produced some badass intellectual life. So like Walt Whitman, for instance was a Quaker, not a Universalist, not a Unitarian, or what's sometimes called Unitarian Universalism. Anyway, stay on track, Justin. Unitarianism, in a nutshell, is a pretty watered-down version of Christianity, if I'm being honest. The unity in Unitarianism comes from their rejection of the Trinity. So they didn't believe that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were this tripartite system or entity, and that the Son of God actually walked on earth. They do recognize Jesus Christ as the Savior, 
but they completely do away with the idea that Jesus was himself in any way God. They actually do away with a lot of other traditionally crucial aspects of proper Christianity or Catholicism, but that's because Unitarianism was essentially the sophisticated and high-status branch of Protestantism that emerges and brews in the New England colonies of America. That's how I see it, affirming the idea that Jesus Christ was in some sense God and God walked upon the earth just wasn't sophisticated enough. It sounds like the naive concoctions of country bumpkins. But the Unitarian intellectuals were high society. They saw themselves as just as smart and capable and accomplished as lawyers and doctors and scientists. And so they evolved their language and their doctrines accordingly. And I think there's a lot lost in this. But there is also something gained, which I think we would do well to understand today. And this brings me to where I think William James is most impressive. Because what he realized was that empirical scientific materialism and scientific positivism were completely changing the politics of public discourse. The rules of the game were being overhauled in a way that one could not just ignore or wish away. He knew that scientific validity was rapidly becoming the only valid currency for public claims or arguments to have any legitimacy or status, both in the eyes of elites, but also in what would actually resonate with the masses moving forward. He knew that all of the discourses about revelation and faith that circulated powerfully and resonantly, all the Christian symbols and stories and the words with which community leaders would articulate the bases of religion, all of this was being rapidly and drastically neutered. Just the basic physiological circuits that made ideas look and seem and feel true, they were being rewired. And so to just condemn Darwinism on religious grounds or to even use at all the trappings of religion or the rhetoric of religion would be dead on arrival. And so all of his work is really about showing the inconsistency and the ultimate inadequacy of science as the overarching social and philosophical worldview it pretended to be. He was totally cool with scientific method and embraced it and practiced it and understood it very well. But he saw that science was tending to generate way more confidence and emotional, spiritual investment than it warranted. According to scientific criteria, its own principles could demonstrate that science was generating ideas and beliefs that were unjustified by science. So that's the first part of it. He was a master of this. But the second part of his larger project is to show that science actually furnishes a lot of data points that seem to corroborate religious faith. And here, a lot of people will want to critique him, like they critique me and my writings on these topics. People often say to justify religious faith or Christianity with scientific method is to insult it and misunderstand it and to ultimately remain locked in fallen, erroneous, secular disenchantment. But the point is not that religious faith requires scientific demonstration or scientific proof. No, and William James is very good on this. He's constantly saying there are questions in life that every person has to answer for themselves with no scientific basis and no possibility of scientific 
demonstration or proof. And he is adamant that one's own religious convictions are of that shape. But what he says essentially is that if Christian faith were true, then none of these emerging scientific discoveries are inconsistent with that. And in fact, a lot of these scientific discoveries weirdly seem to show that religious faith is eminently reasonable. Okay, so I'm basically situating his ideas and his project at a very high level, very abstract. I haven't even given you specifics or examples yet, so let's do that then. Let's look at some of the ideas you can find in his more popular articles and essays and speeches. One book I would highly recommend if you want to look into James, and this is the book I've been reading recently and from which I will draw all of the following ideas. It's called The Will to Believe and Other Essays in Popular Philosophy. I have this Dover edition that comes bound with his essay on human immortality. All of the pieces in this book were produced for wide audiences and intended as contributions to public culture rather than scholarly dispute. So they're quite easy to read and fun and stimulating. Because amazingly, back then, being quote-unquote accessible didn't mean dumbing things down. It just meant being interesting and fun, <laughs> pretty much, to normal people, to, to educated people, normal educated people, even if being educated wasn't normal back then. Anyway, whatever. Good book. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. One of his big points is that science has a faith of its own. Science has faith that the world is, in principle, explainable. And that's never been demonstrated scientifically. It can't be. Rather, science makes this assumption. And it does work to a certain extent. Science does work. It can explain things. But the ultimate warrant for that faith or that untested, unverifiable assumption that the world is a type of thing that can be explained, the warrant is just the usefulness of science. So because the scientific method can get us different feats of engineering that are desirable and that work predictably, that is essentially invoked as evidence that the initial assumption is true. And that's fine as far as it goes. But one of James's great insights is that that is a circular structure, which essentially breaks the rules of science. It's based on a anti-scientific faith, but because it gives us things that we want, we let it slide and call it valid, even though science's protocols for assessing validity do not and cannot show in any way whatsoever the validity of the scientific project as a whole. And so he does a ton of specific work on this point. Like he has this one essay in particular called The Sentiment of Rationality, where he catalogs in detail how the scientist and science as such runs on completely non-scientific emotions and drives and preferences and wishes and desires. He talks about how science is a kind of emotional discomfort with uncertainties and inconsistencies. You know, Marx said that religion is the opium of the masses, but James is saying that modern science is the opiate of people who happen to be plagued by a kind of itch. Science is a kind of eczema of the mind. And that's fine. If you have eczema, then you might want to scratch what itch is, or you might want to act on the world to alleviate your itch. That's all well, well and good, he says. Just don't get it twisted that this is anything other than what religion does. And then the move he makes is, if science and religion have this essentially equivalent epistemological structure, and ultimately, all ideas are considered true to the degree they comport with the emotions and physiological needs of the beings who hold them. Well, then let's analyze the effects that these 
two different approaches produce. And this is where the analysis of religion's psychological and sociological consequences comes into play. Not because religion needs to be proven scientifically for someone to have a good and reasonable and defensible religious faith. No, James believed people could and should reasonably have religious faith with absolutely nothing coming from science to support that. He's just saying, okay, if you all want to play this game of science and you think that's all that matters for determining what's true, well then, okay, let's play this game of science. And lo and behold, it just so happens that on the terms of science, having religious faith is more rational than the religion that science was becoming. For example, he talks about how the empirical sociological phenomenon of relationships or friendships are scientifically shown to have different results depending on the initial assumptions of the individuals involved. He gives the example of someone who meets a new person, and for no reason whatsoever, the one person just believes and assumes that the other person will not like him. And James points out that if I believe you are not going to like me, this belief is going to make me an act, it's going to make me act in ways that increase the probability of you not liking me. Whereas if I believe that you will like me, I'm more likely to act in ways that will make you like me. And notice these two different starting beliefs about whether you will like me or you will not like me. This is completely undecidable scientifically. We're talking about a hypothetical situation where one has literally no information about the other person or what to expect from the other person. Like when you really just meet a person or hear about a person with no information at all, whether you like it or not, you have to proceed with certain assumptions. And for all intents and purposes, those assumptions, which are basically physiological realities of our organism, like it is just how we work. In fact, if you're familiar with the contemporary scientist, Carl Friston, it's this idea of predictive processing. Everything you actually think and feel right this second that you think is present is actually a kind of artificial construction from what your mind is predicting will be the case. And so you have to make what are essentially many leaps of faith all the time throughout the day. And here's a clear example that is well-documented and logically sensible where epistemologically equivalent positions adopted on faith lead to different subsequent realities. Well, James says, how is it any different when we think about God? If you don't want to believe in God, then you're almost certainly never going to meet him. Whether he exists or not, that's a true statement. If you don't believe him, you're almost certainly not going to meet him. And if you believe in him, you are more likely to meet him. The scientific rationalist wants to say that this disproves or critiques belief in God because look, oh, it's all placebo effect and confirmation bias and self-fulfilling superstitions. And James says, well, kind of, except that this cuts both ways. It's possible we're talking about self-fulfilling prophecies, whether you believe or don't believe. And so if that washes out and we see that scientific method and religious faith are, just like we said before, epistemologically equivalent at the structural level, then which one is it most rational to opt for? And James says, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you take it on faith that God is real and he turns out to be real, then you get a ton of upside because, and then James proceeds in his other works to show the psychological benefits of belief. Whereas if you take it on faith that God is not real and scientific method is the primary way of knowing what is real, then there's some chance that you'll just fail to meet literally the most amazing 
perfect entity ever. And so the rationality of believing in God can be seen as genuinely intelligent and sensible and obvious as the advice you would give to a schoolboy about having a happy and successful social life, right? If some kid came to you and they were anxious about whether or not they're ever going to be liked, everyone would absolutely agree that you'd want to do anything you could to instill that kid with confidence that people will like him. You'll want that kid to have faith that people will like him because we all know that makes you more likable and has real causal effects on people actually liking you, right? So I really like this. Another example would be in The Will to Believe, where James talks about this so-called three-stage model of reflex action, this popular scientific conception at the time. It's basically just what we would call determinism for short, or just the idea that human behaviors are pretty much fully just the outcomes of physiological processes like synapses in the brain or the nervous system are what make me stand up from this chair or whatever. And that ultimately everything we do can be explained by correlates in our material organism that are triggered right before we do the behavior. Okay. And so James says, you all think that this disproves God or shows that religious convictions are obviously just illusions generated by material processes in the body. But James says, this model is weirdly consistent with belief in God. And so he breaks this down in a somewhat nuanced way. But in a nutshell, he says this is essentially a three-stage model. The idea is that we take in sense data, like with our eyes and our ears and other organs, and then there's a process of interpreting or theorizing or reflecting on this sense data. And this intermediate reflection stage triggers bodily action. So those are the three levels. One, sense data. Two, reflection. And three, bodily action. And what he says is, first of all, realize what this model is implying. It's implying that all human thought and processing is teleological, that it's essentially being driven by the survival needs or requirements of the organism. Because sense data is almost infinite. Our eyes and our ears and our nose, in a technical sense, takes in a mind-boggling quantity of information. And so to make sense of it and to actually live in the world, the theory or reflection stage is essentially filtering for the third stage. It's subordinate to that third stage of what action will be taken. And this is perfectly sensible, right? You don't spend all day thinking about sense data because you would literally die if you didn't filter out the overwhelming majority of that sense data and focus on the things that lead you to eat food and drink water and so on. Okay, so this theory is actually teaching that our organs are a kind of bias subordinated to contingent, arbitrary, practical necessities of action. And James says this is a total self-own for the scientific atheists because it means that literally everything that seems to exist, according to human beings, is limited and biased and misshapen, and that therefore we are capable of imagining the greater whole of everything that exists, which we know we can't fully process, thanks to this theory, but now we have a mental image of the whole. And so a truly rational scientific person who has gone this far in the rational truth-seeking process will naturally and correctly want to give a name to that larger whole, which we know we cannot access 
due to the biased nature of our organs and faculties. And so James says that God is, in some sense, the only adequate object for a truly searching, truth-seeking mind. And religion is even so intelligent as to be honest about the fact that we don't know what that whole contains exactly, and we cannot prove anything about it, and that's fine. But we nonetheless believe in it. We believe that perfect whole exists and is good because we don't feel whole until we do, until we do invest faith in it. And again, James is not saying that religion is true because if you believe in it, you get good things you want. He is saying that if you are a scientific materialist, then to be consistent, ultimately, you will rationally the ultimate ineluctable necessity of a faith-based position on life. And then an affirmative faith in God appears to be a better match with the empirical reality of what our mind is than a faith in science as the criterion of reality, and therefore a faith that God does not exist. All right, I think that's enough for today. What do you think? Do you find these ideas interesting or compelling? Or do you think all of this is just a heretical capitulation to the satanic power of science? Personally, I think this is the kind of thinking that the world really lacks right now. I think this is exactly the style of thought that best expresses Christian faith in a world that is, we have to admit, just like William James admitted, completely corrupted and overtaken absolutely by a doomed scientism. Well, either way, let me know what you think. You can write me or send questions to otherlife.co slash contact or hit me up on Twitter. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, go send this episode to someone if you liked it, of course. It really helps to get the word out about this new project of mine. All right, gang, enjoy the rest of your day and peace be with you.